The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome. Thank you, as always, for joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. I am glad that you are here. When I think of interviews that I was a little intimidated, my heart was beating fast right before the interview took place. I inevitably think of this interview with Mike Stoller. What made me think of the Mike Stoller interview, and why did I pull this out of the archives? Well, I was thinking about the movie Forrest Gump. Do you remember when a young Elvis Presley went to stay at the Gump household, and he had his guitar in the room, and he was playing Hound Dog? Young Forrest was kind of dancing around a little bit. Well, Mike Stoller is a composer. He co-wrote the song Hound Dog. This interview was originally broadcast on the radio, my interview with Mike Stoller, the great composer and record producer. It took place a short while after the passing of his partner, the lyricist Jerry Lieber. They called themselves Lieber and Stoller, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, American songwriting team. They brought so many classic songs into the world. Hound Dog, as I mentioned, which Elvis Presley made famous. Stand By Me, which they co-wrote with Benny King, rest his soul. On Broadway, which was recorded by the Drifters. Yakety Yak by the Coasters. And so many others. Everyone in rock and roll recorded or performed a song written by Lieber and Stoller. The Beatles, Fats Domino, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, all of them. Let me know what you think of the interview. I feel like Mike Stoller is a somewhat sacred name in the world of rock and roll and in popular music in general. As always, let me know what you think. Let's get into the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our great pleasure to welcome Mr. Mike Stoller. My pleasure to be here, Paul. Thank you very much. My first question, what was life like growing up? <laughs> My goodness, it was like a lot of things. I really don't know how to answer that. Can you be more specific? Was your household growing up a very musical household? Well, it was in the sense that my mom always had the classical music station on pretty much all day long, up until, you know, I mean, as long as I can remember. I, however, went to a summer camp, an interracial summer camp, back in 1940 it started. And I heard a black teenager playing boogie-woogie on the piano, and I was sort of never the same. I wanted to do that. I watched him. And he thought he was alone, practicing, and when he left, I tried to make my fingers do what I saw his fingers doing. And that was something I just loved. So my life was always filled with music. And as I got older, I got expanded my interests to jazz and modern jazz. And by the time I was a teenager in New York, I was spending my weekends on 52nd Street listening to live music from Charlie Parker and Lester Young and all the greats. You mentioned a second ago about the boogie-woogie 
playing that you witnessed. What was it that you liked about that style? I can't put it into words. I just loved it. It mesmerized. It was beautiful. Can you pick favorite musicians from when you were growing up? Or maybe favorite records? Yeah, probably a little of each. Well, early on, of course, Honky Tonk Train, Mead Lux Lewis, and can't remember the name of all the titles of stuff by, uh, well, early on, Pine Tops Blues by Pine Top Smith. Oh, there were the two great piano players, Pete Johnson and Albert Ammons. And I remember buying a record of Kidney Stew Blues and the name of the artist, who I know very well, just escapes me at the moment. I bought that at Woolworths. And then, of course, I became interested in Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, wonderful people like that. And also, also, when I got to L.A., I began listening to wonderful singers like Jimmy Witherspoon and Charles Brown. Well, speaking of Jimmy Witherspoon, if I'm correct, he was the first person to make a popular recording of a Lieber Stoller song. Is that correct? Well, I don't know how popular it was, but he did indeed make the first. Actually, it was the first public performance, and it was recorded. It wasn't the first released record, but it was the first recorded at the Shrine Auditorium in L.A. at the annual Blues Jamboree, a song called Real Ugly Woman. Not very politically correct in these <laughs> days, but it was the first recorded and second released record. What about the first song you ever wrote? Can you remember that song? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish I could give you a great story about it, but you know, when Jerry and I met in 1950, we, you know, realized that we both loved the blues. And we started writing. And, of course, if we got together for an afternoon, we wrote five songs. And then we'd go home and call each other. We each had written another one, et cetera, et cetera. Great volumes of material that probably wasn't particularly great, but at least it was writing. When you met Jerry Lieber back in 1950, what was your first impression of him? Well, uh, first of all, he was very persistent because he called me on the phone and he went through a litany of questions to make sure I was the right person because he got my phone number from a friend of his who I had played a dance with in a pickup band. He was at Fairfax High School, as was this drummer. And I had just started in Los Angeles City College. And he wanted to make sure that I had played a dance in East L.A. and that I could write notes on paper and so on and so forth. And once he'd ascertained that I was the same guy the drummer recommended to him, he said, well, my name is Jerome Lieber, and I write lyrics. How would you like to write songs with me? And I said, nope. <laughs> and he said, well, 
why not? I said, I don't like songs. You know, I had in mind Jerome Lieber was probably writing some songs that I wouldn't have liked. You know, some commercial stuff. <laughs> and so I was being very pretentious and trying to put him off. But he said, well, what do you like? And I said, I like Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, Bartok, and Stravinsky. And he said, well, nevertheless, I think we ought to meet to talk about it. Interesting. I said, hey, you want to come over? Come over. And I gave him my address. And when he came over, the first thing I noticed about him standing in the doorway was that he had one brown eye and one blue eye. And I'd never seen that before. But it was the first thing I saw. And it kind of, you know, knocked me out. And I forgot to even invite him in. Eventually, however, he did come in. <laughs> and he had a school notebook, a speckled, you know, composition book. And I said, are those your lyrics? He said, yes. I said, well, can I see him? I was being aggressive, you know. And he said, okay. And I looked at them, and I saw he had a line of lyric, a line of ditto marks, and then a rhyming line. I said, hey, these are 12-bar blues. He said, they are? I said, that's what they are. And I liked the blues. I went to the piano, started to play. He started to sing along, and we shook hands and said, we'll be partners. Wow, that's a great story. Let me ask you, when you started to write with him, what was the process of writing songs with Lieber like? Well, unfortunately, we both smoked at the time, and we had both given it up. I stopped in 1969, but... We would smoke. I would sit at the piano with an ashtray. Jerry would pace around the room. I would be jamming at the piano, and he'd be shouting out anything that came into his mind. Phrases, you know, a word, a phrase. And if something sounded good, we'd stop and say, hey, that sounds good, and we'd work on it. It was kind of spontaneous combustion. You know, as years went by, of course, the process would change to some degree. He'd write a verse of lyric, or I'd write eight bars or 12 bars of music, and then the other one would set it with what it needed, lyrics or music, as the case may be. And, you know, then as years went by, sometimes Jerry would write an entire lyric, and sometimes I'd write an entire melody and give it to him to set and vice versa. But in the beginning, it was it was shouting and playing at the piano and spontaneous combustion. Did you ever have any disagreements? Constantly. <laughs> we we have said it was it was unfortunately the longest running argument in the music business, but. We got a lot done. Definitely. The songs have lasted so long. Why do you think that is? That, I don't know. All I can tell you is it was a surprise. You know, when, when Smokey Joe's Cafe opened on Broadway in 1995, I was thinking back on all these songs. And it, and I, it was amazing to me that songs we'd written... Forty some years ago, we're still 
popular, and, and people knew them. We assumed when we were writing them that they would be uh, forgotten in six months if we were lucky. You know, they could have been forgotten in six days if we weren't. But the thing is, we wrote to amuse ourselves. And uh, we were fortunate in finding that what we wrote to amuse ourselves amused a lot of other people. And apparently they remembered them. Could you pick a favorite Lieber and Stoller song? Well, no, that'd be hard, but I tell you... Both Jerry and I, responding to a similar question, always picked two records that were our favorites. And that was Big Mama Thornton's record of Hound Dog and Peggy Lee's recording of Is That All There Is? Because it kind of represented, it represented the, the range and the, and the breadth of, of what we were doing and what we had done. The song Hound Dog, how did that, the composition of that song come about? Well, it was inspired by a meeting, getting to hear Big Mama Thornton. Johnny Otis, Johnny Otis called me at my home and said, because we'd been working with Johnny, you know, writing stuff for Little Esther and Little Willie Littlefield. And he called me and said, are you familiar with Willie Mae Thornton, I said, no, I'm not. He said, well, I have to run a session out here for her label in Texas, out here being in Los Angeles, which is where we all lived at that time. And he said, well, you better get Jerry and come on over my house because and, and take a listen to her. We got a rehearsal going this afternoon. I said, okay, I'll get him. And we drove over to Johnny's place, which wasn't that far, and heard Big Mama, witnessed her her person. She was quite formidable. And, you know, she was a big woman at that time, close to 300 pounds. And she could sing. And she knocked us out. So we jumped in my car, my 37 Plymouth, and drove back to my house, and by the time we got there, Jerry was already cooking on a lyric, and I went in and started playing the piano, and we had the song finished in about 10 or 12 minutes. We drove back to Johnny's house and presented it to Big Mama. She started to sort of croon it as if it were a ballad. I don't know if she was putting us on or what, and Jerry said, don't go like that. Mama, and she said, white boy, don't be telling me how to sing the blues. <laughs> At which point, Johnny Otis came running over, and he said, Mama, now, you want a hit record? These boys write hits, which was an exaggeration at that point in our lives, but it quieted her down. And then Jerry and I demonstrated the song, which got the the band laughing, but appreciatively, I must say. And the next day, we went to the recording studio. And that was it. Two takes. The first one was great, and the second one is was greater, and that's the one that, that we know. And Johnny had to play drums because we insisted, so we ran the session. And so it was our first unofficial record production. In your opinion, Mr. Stoller, what makes a good song a good song? 
something that affects you in one way or another. It has to affect you. It either entertains you greatly, moves you emotionally. It gets to you in one way or another. That, I think, is a successful song. It may not be a hit, but it's a successful song if it can entertain on one hand, if it can move you on another, and if you remember it. Because I think many people, when they hear a song or a piece of music, it reminds them of something in their lives. The first time they heard the song or the people that they were with when they heard it, a romantic interest, whether it was in school or whether earlier or later, but something that that makes people remember it. On that note, what is it you like about music, if you could put it into words? What do I like about music? I like music. That's what I like about music. I wanted to ask you about a couple of specific songs. I wanted to ask you about On Broadway. Tell us about that song. Well, that song was originally was written by uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. And they were signed as as writers to a publishing firm owned by Don Kirshner. And a record was made of it, and it was not successful. And Don called and said, could you guys, you know, work on it? Because I think it has the makings of a hit song, but there's something that isn't happening. And we said, of course, so long as Barry and Cynthia are okay with that. We wouldn't want somebody rewriting our songs or with an idea of, or whatever without our permission. So they were up for it, and we all gathered in Jerry's living room in New York. We had moved to New York by then and spent an evening making some changes big lyric changes, influencing each other with ideas. And then we made a record with the Drifters, and it became a hit. When the Beatles did Kansas City, what did you think of their version of the song? I'm a major Beatles fan. I love the Beatles. I didn't like theirs because they didn't use the tune that I had written. As a matter of fact, a lot of the words were not the original words either because what they had done is they copied a recording by Little Richard again a hero of mine but he had kind of mixed our song Kansas City with a song of his called Hey 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 and it didn't really resemble the song that we wrote, first recorded by Little Willie Littlefield in 1952, and then covered seven years later by Wilbur Harrison, and that one became number one. And that's, that's the song that we wrote. One of the songs that you all wrote is probably one of the most beloved songs of all time, and it was the one that you composed with Ben E. King, yeah. who was just Stand a recent... Me. What inspired that song, the, the music for it? Well, 
it all grew together. I mean, Benny King had taken a notion from gospel song. There is a gospel song called Stand By Me. The phrase is not uncommon. But he he wrote a very touching song, and Jerry worked with him on the lyrics, and he had the beginning of a beautiful tune, and I walked in while they were working on lyrics, and I went to the piano, and I started playing against what Benny was singing, and I also created, while we were working on it, the bass pattern which became a the motif of of the song musically. I wanted to ask about the, the King Creole. There's a specific song that Elvis Presley, you guys did, it was called Trouble. I really liked that song, and I was hoping you could tell us about it. Well, it just, it was kind of the braggadocio song. You know, if you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. I mean, I have... A nephew who put it on his answering machine at home. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's just one of those songs. It's just, uh, you know, it's a bigger than life type character. I read something that you said one time where you were talking about Elvis Presley and you said that the correct title for what you guys did with him in the studio wouldn't be producer but director. Well, that has not to do just with Elvis. When we started making records, there was no, nobody had the title producer. And we were making records, writing songs and making records for Atlantic, who had come to us. We had a little label in L.A. called Spark Records, which we had with our mentor, Lester Sill. And we were very underfinanced. You know, we were selling some records in L.A. In fact, we we on one song, we sold like 100,000 records in L.A. And very few beyond because we couldn't promote them. We didn't have the funding to, tra- you know, to travel, to promote, etc., etc. Atlantic Records, Nesui Ertigan, Ahmet Ertigan's brother, who was located in L.A. In fact, he was teaching a course in jazz at UCLA, heard our records and thought they were really good and sent them to his brother Amit and Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records in New York. And they offered us an opportunity. They said, give up your record company. You make great records, but you don't know how to sell them. We can sell them. So if you make records for us, We'll pay you a royalty for making the record in addition to your song royalty. And we leaped at the chance because, among other things, we were big fans of the records that Atlantic was putting out. After a while, we started making records that were of songs that we hadn't written in addition to the ones that we did write. And so we asked for credit. Initially, the response was, how many times do you want to see your name on a record? <laughs> but they got the picture when we were doing songs that we hadn't written. So they gave us the title, produced by Lieberstoller or a Lieberstoller production. If it had been a film, we would have been directors. But 
because producer implied that we were putting up the money or raising the money to make the record. And that's not what we were doing. We were creatively directing everything involved in the making of a record. But somehow the word producer stuck, and very shortly thereafter, the whole music business went that way into independent productions. Well, Mr. Stoller, you've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate it. I have two final questions. First, okay. what is the best thing about being Mike Stoller? I've been very fortunate. I've been very fortunate to make a living doing things that I enjoy doing. And I've been very fortunate in having a partner up until a couple of weeks ago in a partnership that's lasted 61 years with Jerry Lieber. I'm also very fortunate in being very happily married and fortunate in having three wonderful children. And what else can I say? I'm a lucky guy. Wow. My last question. This broadcast is going out to people all over the world. What would you like to say to all the people who are listening in? Thank you for listening. And I'm delighted that this is going out all over the world. I'm thrilled. I would say, along with thank you for listening, I would say merci, gracias tanto, and muchas gracias. It's a pleasure. The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much, Mr. Stoller. It was an honor. Thank you so much. God bless. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Bop, bop, dealy, bop, bop. Goodbye.